don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Eight weeks ago, we began this series of Second Captain Saturday on a mission to find our greatest non-sports person, sports person of 2023. Urban Welsh set the tone with daring tales of scoring a header at the same time as being punched in the face by a goalkeeper (laughs) in his school days in Edinburgh. And the relentless action has never let up since, culminating over the course of the next hour with our final guest, the only person left who can lay claim to the title. He's one of our favourite actors in the world. The sensational Michael Sheen is on the show today. Oh, my debit here with Kieran Murphy. Hey Murph. Hey Owen, how's it going? Michael has played some of the best known characters in British history, including Tony Blair, David Frost, and most importantly in the context of the challenge at hand. I should think so. Brian Clough. Yes. The brilliant and controversial English football manager. He did an amazing job in The Damned United, the 2009 movie, which told the story of Clough's falling out with his right-hand man and best friend Peter Taylor, and his subsequent disastrous short spell in charge of Leeds United without Taylor by his side. I watched it again this week, Murph. And I'll tell you this, if Michael was acting out all the training ground moves himself, got to say, he looks like a very handy footballer in his own right. There's some good stuff going on. Right, there. okay. Because, yeah. you know, Cluffy was pretty decent as well. So Absolutely. Was yeah. it method acting or could he call on some, <laughs> you know, innate talent of his own? Before all that, he'd made his name on stage and his extraordinary TV work continues to this day, as those of you who watched the excellent drama Best Interests on the BBC this summer will be well aware. In recent years, he's devoted a lot of his energies to funding community projects in his home country of Wales. Because most of all, Michael Sheen is a proud Welshman, a very proud Welshman, as he showed last year when his words of encouragement to the Welsh football team as they prepared to play England at the World Cup went viral. When the English come knocking on our door, let's give them some sugar, boys! Let's give them some Welsh sugar! They've always said we're too small, we're too slow, we're too weak, too full of fear. But Amar you sons of speed, as they fall around us, we are still here! Yes, that's the kind of passion you can expect from Michael Sheen today. Wow. He is, are we ready for that about the passion? Well, he's ready for us, Murphy. He's okay. ready to talk, so can you quickly remind us what he needs to do to walk away with the top prize? I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. <laughs> And now, on we face the final curtain. Ender Walsh's 85 points is enough to give him top spot with only one contestant left. And to be honest, that should be that. I would have thought. No one's ever rocked up on the final day and taken ultimate victory. So Michael Sheen is not just battling one of Ireland's greatest playwrights, he's also <laughs> battling history. And let's face it, on the natural order of things. Can he face down all of that and still emerge victorious? <laughs> or is he destined to spend the rest of his life languishing in mid-table behind the likes of Annie Mack, Samantha Barry and Conan Ham Hans O'Brien. If only, he'll whisper on his deathbed, if only Murph had looked more favourably on my lifetime of sporting achievements and my all-time sporting highlight, thus giving me a higher score out of 100. I mean, I may not have agreed with him at the time, but God damn it, I respect him. That may seem like a lot of words for someone who's about to... I would have thought so, yeah. It seems a bit convoluted. But that's the fate 
Michael Sheen is trying to avoid today. He won't die wondering on. The best young actor of his generation is not a bad review to get from one of the biggest newspapers in the country when you're 22 years old and a year out of drama school, but that's the sort of reputation today's guest had from the get-go. Since then, he has continued to light up the stage and screen, and his first project as a director will soon air on the BBC, a drama series set in his hometown of Port Talbot in Wales. He's previously described himself as possibly the most competitive person in the world with a burning desire to obliterate rate all competition and that was just for a charity edition of Great British Bake Off so imagine how fired up he's going to be today to try to become our greatest non-sports person sports person of 2023 Michael Sheen thank you so much for being our final guest of the series <laughs> thank you here I am the worst older actor of his generation <laughs> I've managed to get to uh, listen the, I should mention by the way your competition at the top of the leaderboard is the playwright Enda Walsh he was a decent high jumper but much more importantly he was believe it or not he was the actual Irish mascot during our Italian 90 glory years under Jack Charlton. So do you still feel you no. can obliterate that hairy Irish wolfhound mascot today? Oh, that's that's a that's a high bar that's been set there. Mm. <laughs> Oof. I think I had the stickers for the Italian 90. Did it was it was Ender a, a sticker? Uh, panini ooh. sticker. He, well, I mean, they would have had the mascot as yeah, a panini sticker. Yeah, the mascot would have yeah. been there, but I mean, yeah. I don't, I don't think it was literally end up posing for the photograph. You know, similar to this, oh, the knows? squad with the kind of arms <laughs> folded. Uh, yeah, for the for posterity, for panini posterity. Before acting took over and really got serious for you, Mike, I believe that competitiveness was channeled into football. Yeah. Oh, I mean, that was that was my world. I I ate lived, breathed, slept football. It was probably at its height when I was about age seven because for three years I lived uh, near Liverpool in a place called Wallasey in Birkenhead. My family moved there because my dad's work. So we left Wales, went to there, and uh, my favourite player was Kevin Keegan in the Liverpool team of that era. So we're talking 74, 75, 76, around there. So when I was seven years old, living in Liverpool going to watch Keegan play at Anfield and playing football constantly all the time. That's all I thought about. That was the kind of high point of things. And then when Keegan left for uh, for Hamburg, was it you went to? Uh, yeah. You know, things went very seriously downhill from then. <laughs> but as a player, we moved back to Wales when I was eight. You know, I played the local team and all that. And then we went on holiday to Pontins on the Isle of Wight when I was 12 Mm. And there was this kid, I mean, he, he looked like an older man to me. He was probably 15, 16 or something on holiday there with his dad and a <laughs> friend of his. And he had, they had a ball and I was, you know, I was kicking a ball around and they started playing and we started playing around. And then we played in a kind of interpontins team. Yeah. And then weirdly, there was a match set up between like a local team and a, and a pontins team, which was not usually done. And I played in that. And unbeknownst to me, it was a match that had been set up in order to watch me play competitively. And this kid, this 15, 16-year-old kid, was Tony Adams. And his dad wow. was like a scout for Arsenal at the time. And it was his dad who had set this match up, unbeknownst to me. <laughs> and then at the end of it, he went up to my dad and said, look, we'd like to offer him a place at Arsenal at the youth, on the youth team. What? And I didn't, I didn't know this. I heard, I overheard this. When we got back off the holiday, I heard my mum and dad talking to their friends in the front room about it all, and I overheard it. And um, and my dad said, so, you know, I said, well, we can't come and live in London, you know, we've got the job here and we can't move down, so I don't think that's going to happen. I remember this sort of weird mixture of emotions, like so excited to hear that this had happened and this was what was mm. going on, but, you know, devastated that it wasn't going to happen. 
And so, I, and also, I I shouldn't have been listening outside the door, so I couldn't <laughs> let on that I knew. And um, but then, probably by the time I was about fourteen, I was already kind of getting into the acting thing, and and I, I not that I went off football, but. It had sort of peaked for me. I was really, really good when I was 12. Oh, it sounds like you're not getting scouted by Tony Adams' dad for Arsenal out of Pontins unless you're pretty good. Uh, I got I got worse quite quickly. But I, was, I was really good as a 12-year-old. So I, I've always got that. I, when I can't get to sleep, sometimes I, I think back to goals I scored or particular moments in games. I mean, literally, like not just like competitive games, but like I remember specific games in the on the school playground when I was like mm. 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Mm. I can remember moments of things that I did. Kind of stuff. I just love the idea that the rest of us come back from holidays at that age and probably exaggerate a few stories about romantic dalliances we may or may not mm. have had. You're coming back to your mates telling them, oh, by the way, I got scouted for Arsenal there. Yeah, which I'm sure you, would, you wouldn't know her. She goes to a different school is like the <laughs> oldest cliche in the book I didn't tell anyone else that's the isn't that weird yeah. now I thinking about it I, you, and you saying that it's not like I went into school and talked I didn't tell anyone isn't that that's odd isn't it why didn't yeah. I tell anyone that's really strange and of course that's the other thing I've often I mean I have often thought about what would have happened if, if I had gone along there you know and even if I'd done well I mean the chances are I would never have made it you know, into into professional mm. football. And if I had, that I would never have made it to the first team. And if I had, that I would never... Do you know what I mean? Like, it, it's, it's such a tiny window. And then even if I had done that, your career would still be over before, really, my career was taken off as an actor. You know, by the age when things were really taken off for me, I was in my 30s, really, you know. And, um, uh, you know, and by that point, as a football player, you, you're getting into your twilight years, aren't you, really? So, yeah. and then what do you do after that? So... You know, my, my I'm I'm glad it worked out the way it did. <laughs> yeah, it's gone all right for you. I think it's fair to say, Michael. Can you tell us about Port Talbot? It's near Swansea. What kind of a place was? What is it? And was it in the seventies and eighties? Uh, well, yeah, Port Talbot. So it's uh, it's an old steel town. It had the the biggest uh, and most sort of important, really, uh, steel works in the whole of Europe at one point. Uh, employing you know thousands and thousands of people from the local area. So the steelworks is the kind of heart has always been the heart of the town um, over the last... I mean, as, as long as I can remember now, certainly over the last 20 years, it's always been in jeopardy. There's always a great deal of insecurity because of the steelworks. I mean, the the, the centre of the, the town is really the big uh, estate, the Samfields estate, which was built to house the workers at the steelworks. Um, but Patalbot was rough. I mean, it was it was the threat of violence was constant <laughs> and mainly through sport. So I was playing football... For my local team, which is Bagland Boys Club, um, I was playing football for my school. I was playing rugby for my school. I was playing basketball for my school. I was playing most sports, you know. But going and playing the other schools in the area, I mean, going to play Samfields. So the Samfields Estate was the biggest estate, like I said. Going and there was a big comprehensive school in Samfields Estate. So the, the there would be a coach that would take us to Samfields School to play them, and then the coach would the the bus would bugger off, and so we'd have to walk home. But at the end of the match, whether it was football or rugby, the end of the match, the entire school would be waiting for us outside their school gates, <laughs> oh, and no. we'd have to we'd have to tie our rugby or football boots, like wrap them round our hands and take corner flags because the teacher would bugger off as well so we'd have to just fight our way home it was like have you ever seen that film the warriors yeah 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 where, yeah, yeah. where they have to get across new get across america it was like that we'd have to fight our way home and they'd all be waiting for us and chucking bricks at us and stuff as we walk past. it was that was kind of what what i grew up with um 
And it sort of felt like that a lot of times. So I, I, it's probably over-exaggerated in my memory now, you know, the, how much it was like that. But I remember as a kid just being quite scared. But also, of course, I was, I was into the acting stuff quite early on as well. So I was doing... I'd be doing drama and school plays and playing football and rugby for the school as well. Was that a strange dichotomy? Were you seen as a bit of an oddball for being an I th- actor? Well, it, young it actor? worked out pretty well because it meant that the, you know, normally if you were uh, doing drama, if you were doing school plays, the, the, the lads, the sporty lads, they would kind of, you know, have a go at you for it. And if you were uh, one of the drama people you'd think that the sporty ones were kind of idiots <laughs> and so i was I, I had a foot in both camps so no one had a go at me because i was sort of better at every, than everybody else at both things <laughs> both of them. At, at school so i kind of got away with it so that was fine and of course that was the other thing you know we in my area um from port albert was um richard burton had come from port albert anthony hopkins comes from port albert so there was a real tradition of actors as well um, and and kind of men's men actors, you know. So Burton mm. and Hopkins were both kind of respected by by the you know the, the the men in 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 the area. So so it wasn't really seen as being a poncy thing to do. It was seen acting was seen as a kind of you know it was a man's profession, and there was a lot of pride in the area about that mm. as well. So I kind of I I really benefited from that. I think I think you know weirdly a lot of people think it's quite odd to the actors come from that area. But of course, once you've had Burton and Hopkins coming from there, then it makes it a lot easier to do it because people have an innate respect for it and a kind of pride around it. And I've, so that's always been really useful for me. Did you ever speak to Anthony Hopkins about that influence? You know, that, like that idea that it was so much easier for you because you were walking in his shoes in the same way, I suppose, that Hopkins had walked in Richard Burton's shoes 20 years before that. Well, well Tony Hopkins told me that a story about when when Burton was married to Elizabeth Taylor and they came, they used to kind of come and visit Patalbert. Famously, once they came in a helicopter <laughs> and landed, landed on Aberavon Beach in a helicopter and got out and they both had massive fur coats on. I mean, I can't imagine anything more glamorous than that. Can you? Um, one day, I want to come on in a helicopter to Aberavon Beach wearing a massive fur coat. Um, and, uh, uh, and Hopkins said, uh, Tony said that... Um, uh, they, you know, they'd come to visit and um, they went to visit uh, a relative of, of Burton's who, who lived just a couple of streets away from where Tony Hopkins lived. And he was only a kid at the time. And uh, his father uh, ran a business. Like was, I think his father was the baker, I think, a local baker. And um, anyway, so someone had said to, to Tony Hopkins, oh, Rich, Richard Burton's in, in uh, Sissy's house around the corner. So he went over there and he knocked on the door and... Uh, Burton's older sister, Sis, who sort of looked, who brought him up, uh, came to the door and he said, excuse me, is Mr. Burton there? And uh, Richard, someone here to see you. And Burton comes to the front door and there's, you know, little kid, little Tony Hopkins. And he says, uh, yes, what do you want? He said, can I have a autograph, please? He says, do you, do you speak Welsh? And Hopkins said, no, no. Oh, not a proper Welshman then. <laughs> and, and was kind of making fun of him. And then, this, and then Sis said, uh, this is Dick the Baker's boy. And Burton said, oh, oh I, I used to work in the, in the co-op just uh, opposite the bakers there. I was useless, hopeless. I was hopeless. And Hopkins, who always felt like he, he was sort of told that he was stupid, really, when he was a kid. Mm. He always felt sort of top stupid. And um, he said that the thing that impressed him the most about meeting Burton was when Burton had said that he'd been hopeless when he, you know, when he was younger. Mm. And that that gave him, it made him feel like, oh, well, 
you know, people thought Richard Burton was hopeless. I've, I, there's chance for me. Mm. Um, and, uh, and so he was, you know, he was hugely affected by meeting him and obviously by having him as an example. And then it was, you know, it was really meaningful to me. I, I played Hamlet about ooh, 12 years ago now. And on the opening night of Hamlet, I was doing it at the Young Vic Theatre in London. And on the opening night, there was a knock on the door and, um, and there was a, a basket and they brought the basket in. And there was a big bottle of champagne, a card, and Hopkins had sent it to me for my opening night, all the way from LA, you know. Right. And 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 we've sort of been in touch since then, and and every now and again we'll have sort of flurries of emails and stuff. And um, and and just a couple of years ago, I remember him saying, he told me that um, sometimes because he, he lives in Malibu, and uh, on the beach there, and he says sometimes I miss Patalbert so much that I stay up all night on Google Satellite. And I, you know when you can actually yeah. go through the streets, yeah. the actual streets? And he said, I just go round Patalbert all night on wow. Google Satellite. Because where the place where his dad's bakery was is now, um, I think it's now uh, Evans Pies or something like that. It's, it's another place. <laughs> mm. So sometimes I drive past and I'll take a picture of it and then I send it to him just to, you know, just yeah. to let him know it's, it's still there and stuff. Acting also ran in the family Michael, I want you to give your dad his kudos here, his moment in the sun, because he got his own taste of Hollywood in the 90s, right? Do you have amateur operatic societies over there? Yeah. Well, am- well amateur drama more so than opera. Right, yeah. But I mean, well, yeah, this is different. Yeah, yeah, so this is different. So it's not amdrum. It's amateur operatic societies, which are, were hugely popular in Wales when I was a kid. Are we talking and Gilbert would... and Sullivan or are we talking... We're to- yes, we're talking right. yeah, yeah. Gilbert and Sullivan. We're talking like, you know, classic American musicals like Carousel and Oklahoma and yeah, Annie yeah. Get Your Gun and that Yeah, yeah, we've a bit of that here. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, and it would, you know, it's a very social thing. So it was for people who wanted to be in a performance, um, but it weren't, you know, professional. And you'd only do one production a year and you'd rehearse, you know, once a week and, it, and you'd rehearse for a year, <laughs> once a week. <laughs> and then you'd all go to the pub, presumably. And it was a very social thing. So when I was growing up, my, well, before I was born, my mum and dad had both been in local amateur operatic societies and my uncles and aunties and my grandparents had and all that. So it was real tradition of that. And so when I was a little kid, the first time I went into, the, into a theatre was to see, um, the, you know, this kind of amateur operatic society. And at that point, really early on, they were still doing those very old ones like The Sorcerer mm. and, you know, things that never get done anymore like, and really old stuff. But so, I, so my image of the theatre was of what I what I thought of then as very old people with too much makeup on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like, you know, backstage where my mum and dad would take me into the dressing rooms afterwards and you'd see all these quite scary looking mm. people with all this makeup on and weird costumes. But there was something very kind of magical about it as well, you know. So that was my first experience seeing that. Um, and um, so my, my dad loved it. My dad would have loved to have been an actor. But, my, my, but God bless him, he's terrible, terrible. Uh, not a good actor <laughs> and not a good singer but just you know de- I mean it's is tragedy really he was born with more desire and passion for performing than you know most actors but yeah. none of the talent at all. Um, and so then in the um, in the very early 90s when I was at drama school the first Tim Burton Batman film came out mm. with Jack Nicholson as the Joker and um People started coming up to my dad in the street and saying, 
you don't have to look like Jack Nicholson. Oh, my God, do you know you look like Jack Nicholson? Kept saying, and my dad didn't even know who Jack Nicholson was. He thought he was the golfer, Jack Nicholson. <laughs> and, um, but it, it just sort of happened overnight. And he must have... I mean, he'd always, saw, he'd always had the hairline, I suppose. But just at a certain point in his life, it just coincided with Jack yeah, Nicholson, yeah. just at the point where Jack Nicholson was really, <laughs> yeah. you know, a bit massive. And um, so he ended up, like... Uh, winning a competition where you had to look like Jack you know have, have, do you look like Jack Nicholson take a photograph send it in so Michael come and take a photograph of me looking like Jack Nicholson come on and I'll send it into this competition so I did that and he won this competition he got an agent a lookalike agent and so then he started working doing these lookalike jobs yeah. and um I mean, it started off small, like in the local cinema in Patelbert, the Plaza Cinema, when they were showing Batman, my dad would stand out. This was back in the days when they were like queues down the, round the yeah, block to yeah, come and yeah. see films, you know. Um, and my dad would stand on the steps of the cinema dressed as Jack Nicholson as the Joker before he becomes the Joker, so he looks like a sort of mafia guy, standing there as if he was like a waxwork. And as the queue went past him, he would wait, and then he'd jump out of the... <laughs> and, um, and he said he, said, uh, he said he could see in the line, quite far off, a bloke he worked with. And, uh, and, so, and so he had dark glasses on and a hat and all that, my dad. And, but he saw this guy, Dave or whatever, walk, you know, in the queue. Mm. So he waited for Dave to get right next to him, and then he went, Dave Roberts! <laughs> and, jumped, and this guy ran off down the street. Um, <laughs> So, and then when they came out of the film, he'd be waiting dressed as the Joker with the full makeup. Yeah, on. yeah, yeah. So that was like that was his first his first job as uh, Jack, but then it just really took off. He ended up working all around the world. He would go to premieres as Jack Nicholson. That <laughs> happened once in Germany. He arrived and they said um, Jack was supposed to be here. He hasn't shown up. You're going to be Jack Nicholson, <laughs> and he had to pretend to be Jack Nicholson. He had to do radio interviews. Ah, oh, you're serious? Stuff like that. Oh, Jack yeah, Nicholson. Mad. Yeah, yeah. Did uh, did the subterfuge last? Uh, no. Uh, in a, it was one of the records was on. The German DJ said, "You're not uh, Jack Nicholson, are you? You're, you're, it's not you." And he, and he used to have a little card that he st- <laughs> that he stuck to the palm of his hand, which said, "Myrick Sheen, even better than the real thing." <laughs> and he just he just showed him the card in his hand like that. My, I, what I always said was, well, my dad lacked in specificity. He made up for in commitment. <laughs> he was he had balls of steel when he was doing stuff. I mean, I would never do that, you know. But he, and he loved it. And then at a certain point, you know, after about I don't know, fifteen years or something, he um, started doing my life as Jack after dinner talks. So he would go around the local area <laughs> and he would do these evenings with Jack, you know, Mike Sheen talking about his life as Jack Nicholson, telling all the story, which was just as entertaining, really. Brilliant. I really milked that for all it was worth. Yeah. I love it. You're listening to Michael Sheen, who's been putting forward a strong case to boot Ender Walsh down to second place on the greatest non-sports person, <laughs> sports person table. Last season's runner-up, it's worth mentioning, was the beloved Irish actor Fiona Shaw, who I believe oh. gave you the greatest bit of advice you've ever had earlier in your career. She did. She did. She she saw me doing Look Back in Anger at the National, which I thought I was very good in. And uh, and and I saw her, uh, you know, backstage the next day on the staircase at the National. 
and she and she said I get, she came to see me the night before and I was like right she's gonna she's gonna mm. you know tell me how great I was and she said just be careful you don't enjoy yourself too much <laughs> <laughs> and and I th- and I thought about it and uh, and she said more than that but like I just it completely changed everything for me and uh, I became a different actor after that nice bit of advice there from Fiona Shaw okay we're more than happy for you to enjoy yourself as much as you want today Michael <laughs> up next we're going to talk about Michael's brilliant portrayal of one of the most famous figures in football history second captain first captain whatever our final competitor this year on second captain Saturday is Michael Sheen one of the finest actors of the last 20 years who continues to haunt the dreams of Arsenal legend Tony Adams after running rings around him in a Pontins holiday camp on the Isle of Wight as a young man you also got to indulge that love of football in your acting career Michael how big a thrill was it to play Brian Clough in the Damned United oh, I mean it was amazing to play to play him who you know he was he was one of the people who was such a kind of permanent fixture growing up you know 1974 was a kind of key moment i was i was 5 um so that mid 70s era where um uh, you know, which was sort of, you know, if you think about the things that you saw on TV when you were around six, seven, eight, that kind of age, you know, and that mid 70s period, I've played a lot of people like Clough, Frost, um, you know, Kenneth Williams, there's yeah. a few people who were very big around that time. So it was just, it sort of touched lots of buttons for me anyway, just because of the period of time. Clough being just such an extraordinary character, um, getting to play someone who sort of bridged both worlds for me, that world of football and acting, you know, that was a big deal. But also, well, he was just a star, you know, he wasn't, you know, you you look at interviews with him and his his wit and his, his mind and his sense of humour and his cheek and his just charisma was extraordinary, mm. off the charts. And the fact that he was like, you know, a socialist and that he, and, and the, he was full of contradictions. He could be the most generous, extraordinary person doing extraordinarily generous things and then he could be cruel and you know it could be he could be tough as well in that way um and the, and he was sort of more like a cult leader than he was a, a football manager you know he, he sort of he took people who were outsiders who felt like you know there was no future for them they were they were sort of on the slag heap and then he kind of just molded them in his own image and then made them into superheroes and they worshipped him and he demanded that they worshipped him and that was essentially what they had to do in order for the magic to happen and it happened and it happened over and over again not at Leeds so, though not at Leeds which is interesting and yeah, this is because they were already superheroes oh completely yeah they weren't they weren't the uh, the misfits and that's what's so interesting to me about the book and the movie covering this particular the one failure really of his career and there you could even argue there's parallels there with with Frost and Nixon where you're playing another massive personality as they face the prospect of spectacular public failure. You know, in the case of David Frost, he pulled it out of the fire, in fairness to him, you'd have to say, but it didn't work out for Clough. Was that part of the appeal, playing these big characters in these moments of vulnerability? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's always that's always the thing to play. You know, there's there's no story if, if you know, charismatic character succeeds. Where's the story <laughs> about it? <laughs> you have to see someone... You know, I mean, someone like Clough, who, who who on the outside seems to have the kind of hubris of a Greek hero, you know, you have to see him brought down. You have to see him at his most vulnerable. You have to see where the where the Achilles heel is and, and, the, and the and the and the long night of the soul. That's that's what becomes compelling about those characters. And then, you know, with Frost, you see him come through and succeed at the end. And with Clough, 
you know, for that story, for the Dumb United, you, you see him kind of end in this sort of awful, humiliating interview that happens with, with Don Revy, that, you know, yeah. when he's surprised by Don Revy. But because you know what he goes on to do afterwards, then that, you know, that's part of what the audience bring to that film is the knowledge of what he goes on to do after that, which is, you know, arguably his greatest success <laughs> was after that. Um, although the more you know about Clough, the more bittersweet you know that is also, because not only did he go on to win the European Cup twice and with Forrest and all that, but he fell out with Taylor again and ultimate, and then with alcoholism kind of ravaging him. And um, and then finally when, you know, Taylor dying before they could make up. And there's a heartbreaking interview that Clough did um, a, a while after Taylor had died and he's sitting in the stands, presumably at Forest. And he's been interviewed, and he and they ask him about Taylor, and you can see it just kills him that they never, that, you know, that that's how it ended, you know, and that's sort of heartbreaking as well. But I, it would be great to see the, the rest of the story told, you know. I would love, I would love to to see that being done, whether it was me playing him or not. But I would love to see that part of the story. Michael, in the last decade, you've moved home and you've started to shift your focus quite a bit from acting to funding grassroots organisations in Wales. One cause close to your heart, I know, is the Homeless World Cup. How did you get involved in that in the first place? Someone came to meet me who was part of an organisation called Street Football Wales. Uh, and it was, uh, and I was told it's uh, an organisation that sets up football matches for homeless people. I was like, how does that work? <laughs> that seems, surely the money towards doing that would be better trying to stop them being homeless mm. rather than setting up. For- anyway, mm. And of course, the more I found out about it, the more amazing I found that this organization was and and that there was this homeless world cup that happened every year and so the you it was using football to bring people together to give them a sense of community a sense of structure to be able to get services to them um, without any judgment so I went to see I went with uh, the Welsh teams men and women to the homeless world cup in Norway in Oslo uh, one year, and I just thought I, I, I want to bring I want to make this happen in Wales. So then I became part of trying to make that happen, uh, and it took you know quite a few years, but ultimately we we had it uh, set up in Cardiff. It was going to happen in Cardiff, and so I wanted to kind of go bigger and bolder, and you know try and draw, because the one thing I noticed about the, the homeless World Cup it never brought that many people in from outside. It was an extraordinary experience for the people who took part, and kind of transformational for a lot of the people who took part. But it didn't seem to get the recognition it should have from outside. And the yeah. quality of football was amazing. I mean, it's amazing. And so I thought, well, how can we get more people in? So I, I ultimately my plan was to turn it into a kind of cultural event as well. There would be a music stage and I would try and convince as many people as I knew to come down and perform. And and there would be live events, podcasts and talks in a, in the Bevan tent, we called it. And there would be stuff going on all the time and the football. And you'd get people down to do all that other stuff. And then they'd watch the football. Um, and then with about, um, I think it was about eight weeks to go, something like that. Um, to cut a long story short, it turned out that um, we had been very, very badly let down. Okay. And uh, there was no money. There was no money to pay for any of it. And um, already a lot of work had been done, obviously with eight weeks to go, a mm. lot of work had been done, for, and, and had been, and, and, which was waiting for payment. And there were a lot of big organisations involved who were like, where's the money? And there were a lot of people, some of the most vulnerable people all around the world, looking forward to coming to Cardiff to have this sort of transformational, potentially, experience. And um, 
and we were, I was just staring absolute disaster and ruin in the face. And so I had a choice. I, I had a decision to make, which was, you know, I, I walk away from this. I was not personally responsible, you know, mm. financially or anything. You know, I could walk away. Uh, and, and everyone told me to do that. But I just thought, I can't, can't do that. It's not going to happen. So I had to put everything I had in my bank accounts into it right then just to keep it afloat. Then I had to go and try and convince people <laughs> to give me money very quickly. Um, and, you know, and, and, and people, people did give me some money, but no Sorry, one just like You emptied your own bank account to make sure this thing stayed on the road. Yeah, that was the first part. Then I had to, um, I had a house in Los Angeles and I had the, this house in Wales that I live in because I hadn't sold the house in LA yet. So I essentially put both of those houses up as collateral in order to guarantee that money would be coming down the line. Um, and, and, and I went off, I mean, I was, I was doing reshoots on a film with uh, uh, Robert Downey Jr. And in between takes... I asked if he could give me money, if he could give me money, and he said yes. And I and I broke down in tears as they said action. So there is mm-hmm. one take that is ruined because I'm just crying. I mean, everyone I could possibly ask, people were uh, were sort of amazing, but ultimately I put everything I had, and I'm still paying for it now. I'm still in debt now, um, but I put all you know. I, but we did it, we did it, and it and it got put on, and I I will never forget a sunny Sunday morning in Cardiff when all the teams had arrived and it was the first day of it and there was a procession through Cardiff and the sun was shining and all these teams were like playing beating drums and playing music Mm. and waiting to do this procession Mm. and we walked through Cardiff and I just couldn't believe that it was happening I could not believe that we had got to that moment and here were all these people having this extraordinary time and experience and then we had this week that was just amazing and you know you know it was just incredible it was an incredible experience and to see people, uh, you know, see the teams talking about how um, people would come along and ask for their autographs. Kids asking for their mm, autographs. Yeah. And, you know, a guy said to me, I was, I was sleeping in this park. It was in Butte Park in Cardiff. He said, see that tree over there? I was sleeping in, underneath that tree a month ago. And now kids are coming up and asking for my autograph. It, it so, seems well, to me like at that moment, you know, when you're on that procession through Cardiff, you can say, absolutely, this has been worth it, you know. But it's six weeks after the tournament... I mean, you have to sit down and say, okay, I've created a situation for for myself now where I'm involved in all of these causes, but I have to work to pay for these causes. And I'm just like wondering what the the pressure that comes with that, that you make a decision in your life to say, okay, this is something I'm prepared to bankroll. I'm prepared to put my money quite literally where my mouth is. But now I have to... I actually have to work to allow me to keep doing stuff like that and, and allow myself to live. Yeah, but that's, it, it sort of had the opposite effect on me in that the, 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 the really stressful time was, you know, the eight weeks before going, there's no money, what the, are we going to do? That was stressful and all the way up to it. Afterwards, I was like, well, I mean, I took this gamble because I knew I was going to earn money. You know, I, I, I was betting on the fact that, you know, the place my career was at wasn't going to change massively within the next year or so. So I was banking on like, okay, if I stay where I'm at doing what I'm doing, then, you know, I'm going to be all right. I'll be able to pay this back, you know, relatively soon. And I'm, you know, I may be in trouble now, but I won't be in trouble after, you know, a couple of years. Mm. And and what it actually did was it made me, uh, it gave me more courage to take more risks. So I was like, well, I did that. And I'm still paying that off, but I'm still earning. Money's coming in. 
so why don't I just keep doing this? <laughs> Which is sort of what I did. You know, I've always said to myself, I just, as long as I'm canny about when things start slowing down, <laughs> as long as I'm like ahead of the curve a bit and I don't overcommit to things that just as my career, you know, because at some point, you know, it'll, it might not stop completely, but, you know, I won't be doing the kind of things I'm doing now and I won't be earning the kind of money and all that kind of stuff. Um, I mean, that's already started. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, as long as I'm, as long as I'm clear-eyed about it, you know, I'll be all right. And, you know, and that's been the case. I'm, you know, so I, I you know, there are certain things I don't do and I, I don't pay for and, uh, you know, just to do with me personally that maybe other people would do. But, you know, I have an all right life. Everything's good. Um, and it's not like a, it's no sacrifice involved. You know, when people say, oh, it's good to see someone giving back. And, you know, and it's like, no, that's not, it's not what, that's not what it's about. It's, this is amazing. This is like, Brilliant. I, I, my, the, when people say, you know, why do you do this? Why wouldn't I do it? Why don't other people do it more who are in this same position? You know, it's just a, it's an amazing privilege. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I would, I, it gives me so much pleasure. So I feel incredibly lucky to be in a position to be able to do that. And I will be so sad when I'm not anymore. No, it <laughs> so is. I want to get, I want to do it as much as possible. It is brilliant work you're doing, Michael, and really nicely explained for us as well. We do need to take care of one more item before we rank your sporting life, though. And that is an all-time sporting highlight from your own football or otherwise sporting career, please. Right. Now, look, <laughs> there is the genuine answer and there is the answer that, you know, to try and win this thing. And I am, <laughs> if nothing else, competitive. <laughs> but I am also, you know, I try to be a man of integrity. Mm. So, Listen, romance, know, I, I, you know, I don't have a heart of stone here. You know, I am in many ways a romantic. Mm. So if you've got the romantic option, maybe that could play even better than playing with Zinedine Zidane at soccer well, or something, yeah. you know? I mean, this is the thing, you know, I've played with Zidane. I'm, I'm, I met Pele. <laughs> I, I scored a goal at Old Trafford. I, you know, I've had, I had Kenny Dalglish giving me halftime team talk, which I had to ask him to repeat because I couldn't understand <laughs> it. I, you know, I, I mean, I have extraordinary things. But, you know, some of the most extraordinary things I've done uh, were, were when I've done, you know, stuff with UNICEF and I've gone, to, you know, I've played soccer matches in refugee camps and and they've been some of the most extraordinary experiences where, you know, you just see people in the, in, in, at the, in the darkest moments of their life and yet a football comes out and it just changes everything. Or in Guatemala, in, which is one of the most dangerous places for a kid to grow up and at a, at a sort of a place for uh, young girls who had been abused in some way. And we played football in an alleyway. And it was one of the most passionate games I've ever played yeah. with these young girls. You know, it was just extraordinary. These things are, are such big memories for me. But ultimately, the moment that I will always remember that is the highlight for me personally, and this is not going to win your competition, but it is <laughs> the true moment, was that when I uh, moved back to Wales from Liverpool, so I was eight years old, Football was my absolute life, like I, like I said. Um, we moved back to Wales, and, I, and it was a really nerve-wracking thing to come to a place at that age. I'd left my friends behind, left my school behind, come back to this place that I supposedly came from mm. but didn't really have a memory of um, and was just obsessed with football. And so I joined the local football club, which was Bagland Boys Club. I was eight years old. I had to play for the under... It only started at under 10s. So I turned up to play for Bagland Boys Club under 10s. And there was like about 50 kids who were playing. And it must have been like a sort of trials game. or so. It was mm. a game between Bagland and I think it was like Glencorug or Giants Grave or one of these teams, you know, from around the area. 
And there were loads of kids being just subbed on and off. And they were probably trying to work it out. And I went on and it was like, this was my moment <laughs> to, you know, to make my mark on this team, on this area, on this place to kind of say, I'm this, I'm, I mean, I had a Liverpool accent. I had a Scouse accent. At this point. <laughs> um, and I came on and I scored a, go- a goal with an overhead kick. What? In the mud. As an eight-year-old. It, it was a spectacular overhead <laughs> kick goal as an eight-year-old. Uh, and I will never, ever forget that moment. That is the absolute highlight of everything. Because it wasn't just about the goal, which was spectacular. <laughs> it, was, <clears throat> it was also a kind of like, I'm, I'm here and I'm going to survive this. Amazing. This. Oh, this is good. That's a good highlight. So where were the pitch? Can you paint a scene for us of what the pitch might have been like and the, the general setup? Yeah, so... A lot of the pitches around here uh, and where I grew up, you know, are on, like, there are some that are on hillsides, mm. so they're not flat. So if the <laughs> ball goes out of play, it, it only stops when it hits the river. <laughs> <laughs> there were pitches that I played on where, um, at the time, there was the big PP chem- BP chemical works in the town as well as the steelworks. So you can imagine what was being pumped into the sky. Mm. And there was one pitch that was right in front of the BP cooling towers. And I remember at times playing on that and the sky was like orange and purple because of the chemicals that were coming out. It's like playing on an alien planet. There was one where in order to get to the pitch, you had to walk over a mountain. So you got changed on one side of the mountain and then you had to walk over the mountain amongst the sheep and the cows and then get to the pitch. And I think it was the one where the river was next door to the pitch in a kind of a valley and uh, and it was a bit on a slant so it, and there was kind of there was rocks and gravel in the pitch so you have to be really careful as well um so it was one of a those daring sort of overhead there. kick then literally risking life and limb then yeah risking life and limb yeah i yeah. can't explain to you the technical ability required to score an overhead kick as an 8 year old to launch yourself this is this is really extraordinary stuff was it a winning goal though can you recall did Bagland boys get all three points out of this i it was def- we definitely did win but you also have to, as context, you have to remember that I was I was doing overhead kicks on the school playground as well. So, <laughs> I mean, I was, you know, you, you hear about some performers who, who will do anything for a laugh. There are, I think there are also football players who will do anything. <laughs> no matter what you're playing on, what surface you're playing on, what the circumstances are. If you get the opportunity, you know, I think any anyone who's ever scored a, an, or gone for an overhead kick you know when the ball is in the sweet spot and like everything, all the planets align. And if that happens and you're standing on concrete, don't matter. So compared to that, doing it on a football pitch was nothing. This is a big call. Zidane Zidane is on the scrap heap here. We're going for Baglin boys and the bicycle kick is the highlight here. He's got every right to be confident, I have to say, Murph, because Michael is the only person who can take the title from Enda Walsh. Could you please remind us how the leaderboard is looking? before letting the uber-competitive Michael Sheen know <laughs> if he's done enough to win the whole thing. All right, on the leaderboard as it stands, Irvin Welsh is bringing up the rear on 75 points. Irish music sensation Rady Pete is a half point better off, while Irish potent author Theo Dorgan is the very definition of mid-table respectability <laughs> on 76 points. In joint third, we have Samantha Barry, global editor-in-chief of Glamour magazine, and Annie Mack on 78 points, while the mighty Conan O'Brien is second on 84 yeah. points. All of that is merely a prelude to telling you that Enda Walsh, Irish playwright, non-parai, and an inspiration to mascot suit wearers everywhere, <laughs> is on top with 85 points. That's what you have to beat, Michael. Okay, let's now rank this sporting life of Michael Sheen. You don't understand. I could have had class. We don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. What do you have, then? People like me. I could have been a contender. I 
could have been somebody. Well, Michael, you and so many of your pampered celebrity peers have asked me why we have to end what has been a delightful hour in each other's company on such a bum note. But here we are. <laughs> it's a tough job, but someone's got to do it. And so I must assess your all-time sporting highlight. Pick an athlete that I feel most closely resembles you and your sporting achievements and then give you a score out of 100 to see if you can make a last-minute surge like Iran in a World Cup match against Wales to take the 2023 non-sportsperson sportsperson title in the ninth minute of injury time. Sorry. Uh, an overhead kick at the age of eight is pretty good, I'll give you that. In fact... This really does sound like Mark Sparky Hughes, the volley king of late 20th century football on these shared islands of ours. Trials with Arsenal. The words carry a certain cachet. There's no point in saying otherwise. In any fair world, the fact that you didn't show up for those trials would not be held against you. I'm not, in- I'm not interested in fair. Brian Clough, big points. Playing football with Zinedine Zidane in Old Trafford, big points. <laughs> Helping homeless people find structure and a path out of poverty through the medium of football. Huge points. Big, big points. However, not crying halt when you realise the makers of the Damned United had hired an actor a foot and a half taller than Johnny Giles to play the great man. <laughs> that is going to cost you a couple of points. If, if they hadn't hired Liam Neeson's body double <laughs> he was a big lad. to play Johnny Giles, this could have been a cakewalk. But bloody hell on. I don't think this has happened before. I think he's done it. On a late, <gasps> late charge to become this year's champion in the final show of the series what? with 87 points. Ugh. Michael Sheen, this has been your champion sporting life. Yeah! How about it, Michael? That's Colin O'Brien, your seat in your rearview mirror uh, there, by the way. <laughs> A round of applause for our champion for 2023, Woo-hoo! Michael Sheen, well done. Congratulations. He's earned it. He's earned it. Didn't on. come here to mess with <laughs> Yesterday, any way you made it was just fine. So you turn your days into That's the gorgeous Something on Your Mind by Karen Dalton. What a way to close out the series, Merv. Michael Sheen, our champion for 2023. Just drama right to the final Whoa. whistle on. That's how we do things What here. a reaction too. A good piece of advice for future guests. If Murph thinks you're going to react like that, he may very well put your top spot <laughs> yeah. in future series. It's just relentless enthusiasm is... I love you know, it. I that, love it. That's a big thing for me, Owen. We're bang out of time here. I think we asked about four questions in total between us there. <laughs> Three for me, one for you. The man can tell a story. What can we say? And that accent, oh. Yeah, just get the hell out of the, the way, Owen. thing of that beauty was, there. We, we played it well there. That's all from us. This has been a Second Captains production for RTE. The show was produced by Killian Down. Mark Horgan is the series producer for Second Captains. A massive thanks to Johnny Lanagan and RTE for all her help over the last couple of months. Get yourself onto secondcaptains.com for our daily shows, including coverage of Ireland's adventures in the Rugby World Cup, an adventure that's about to begin in half an hour. Stay tuned to Saturday Sport for live commentary of Ireland's opening game against Romania. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Owen. Most of all, thank you so much for listening and for all the messages we've been getting over the past eight weeks. We've had an absolute blast and we will talk to you again very soon. And congratulations, of course, to Michael Sheen, second captain's greatest non-sports person, sports person for 2023. Second captain, first captain, whatever. 